Good morning. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 9. The Spirit of the Lord God is on me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair. And they will be called righteous trees, planted by the Lord to glorify him. They will rebuild the ancient ruins. They will restore the former devastations. They will renew the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. Strangers will stand and feed your flocks, and foreigners will be your plowmen and vine dressers. But you will be called the Lord's priests. They will speak of you as ministers of our God. You will eat the wealth of the nations, and you will boast in their riches. In place of your shame, you will have a double portion. In place of disgrace, they will rejoice over their share. So they will possess double in their land, and eternal joy will be theirs. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and injustice. I will faithfully reward my people and make a permanent covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their posterity among the peoples. All who see them will recognize that they are a people the Lord has blessed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. it up without more static happening. Well, as you are obviously aware, uh, we are in a time of change. There's changes on my face. has nothing to do with the upcoming transition. I'll just say it now because I, otherwise I'm going to have to say it for everybody. I want to get back to playing that euphonium instrument that I play and the beard gets in the way of the mouthpiece and so, so that's, that's, that's what it's about uh, in case you wondered uh, why there's something missing on my face or who this guy is. Uh, it's still still me. Um, but there are other transitions and changes going on, as we've talked about. Uh, we are in a time of transition between uh, one lead pastor and the next. Uh, next Sunday, Mike plans to deliver uh, his final sermon as our senior pastor. We're also in between sermon series. Uh, we recently finished a series on the book of Amos, the Old Testament prophet, uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm planning to dive back into our study of Luke, which we had on pause. Uh, so there are two transitions, uh, pastors and sermon series. And today's text from Isaiah 61, I just thought would be uh, helpful. I think it speaks into both transitions uh, pretty well. Uh, we've been talking about the difficulty of change. Uh, certainly the change uh, of, of uh, lead pastor is not, it's not necessarily a bad change, but it is a difficult change. And as we work through a challenging change, uh, maybe thinking about the kind of positive transformation that we see in Isaiah 61 can be refreshing to us. But Isaiah 61 also kind of makes a nice link between Amos and Luke. Uh, Amos had a message of judgment on just the rank disobedience among the Old Testament people of God. But Isaiah 61 promises a restoration that comes after 
judgment. And it's a restoration we know is brought by Christ because, uh, as you may have recognized, the opening verses of that text that Andy just read for us are the very scriptures Christ himself read to sort of kick off his earthly ministry. Uh, You may remember the the passage. I think it's Luke 4, if I'm not mistaken, but I don't know why that number's in my head. It could be right, it could be wrong. Anyway, Jesus went to the synagogue in Nazareth, and he picked up the scroll of Isaiah, and he, I guess he scrolled down. You don't flip in a scroll. I was going to say flips through, but I guess he scrolled down because it's a scroll. You scroll on a scroll, right? Um, And he read aloud these words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he sat down, and as everybody stared at him, just wondering what he's going to say next, he drops the bombshell. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So that passage from Luke is one of two New Testament passages that sort of govern my reading of today's text. Isaiah 61 is fulfilled by the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. He himself said so. He is the spirit-filled, anointed servant that speaks in Isaiah, who proclaims and procures the blessings of this everlasting covenant that God promises here. Second text that sort of informs, shapes the way I'm going to walk through Isaiah 61 is found in Hebrews. Some background uh, before I show you what I'm talking about and make this connection. Isaiah 61 is part of a larger section, a few chapters here, that speak on the restoration of Zion. Now, Zion is a word for Jerusalem, or more specifically, there's, there's a hill called Mount Zion that's it's found nearby Jerusalem. So Zion is a figure of speech called a metonymy, but it just refers to Jerusalem, uh, the capital city of God's people in the Old Testament. Going back to chapter 59 and verse 20, Isaiah said a redeemer would come to Zion. Most of chapter 60 seems to be addressed to the city itself. They will call you the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel, in verse 14 of chapter 60. It'll continue on into chapter 62. Uh, I will not keep silent because of Zion, and I will not keep still because of Jerusalem until her righteousness shines like a bright light and her righteousness like a flaming torch. So Isaiah 61, then, is still describing the transformations that will characterize this restored Zion, or New Jerusalem, if you want to call it that. Well, fast forward to the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12 says to New Testament Christians, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous people made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, sprinkled blood, which says better things than the blood of Abel. You have come to Mount Zion. The church partakes in the new Zion and new covenant of Isaiah 61, here and now, proleptically. Now, proleptically, I I just like to use words. Now, you, now you'll know if I accidentally say that word. I don't know why. Did anybody just word proleptically slip out? But anyway, it, it just means that we experience this fulfillment in an already not yet. 
kind of a way. The kingdom is coming. We pray thy kingdom come. We wait for Christ's return and for our bodily resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth. And yet we also know in the New Testament we are called new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Think of the way Paul describes the state of Christian living in Colossians chapter 3. He says, you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now Christ is seated in glory at the right hand of the Father, and that's where your life is hidden now. It's hidden to the world, but we know it by faith. This is where we live, but this reality won't be made visible until Christ, who is your life, appears. And then, as Paul says, you also will appear with him in glory. There are a lot of opinions and disagreements among Christians about how exactly this plays out and the relationship between Israel and the church. I won't get into that, but the point I want to make is that the promises that we read here in Isaiah 61 are for you as Christians, they're for us as the church. Everything in this text is fulfilled in Christ, and therefore it is for all who are found in Christ. That doesn't mean that we can read it out of context. It means we read it the way Jesus did, pointing to him. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Just a couple other notes on how I'm going to make it through this text. It's a glorious text, is it not? There are just riches here, more than we can possibly uncover in a sermon. Uh, there are hints of the Trinity at work. The Spirit of God rests on Christ at the beginning of the passage. There's a reference to the everlasting covenant, a relationship with God that is mended once and for all. Today I want to focus on the things that are transformed. Uh, and even that is going to be difficult to do. This is literally poetry that we are looking at, that Isaiah has written. And, and as such, it is a work of art. Uh, my spirit just rebels against the idea of trying to break it down into uh, sermon points that are easily digestible. Uh, speaking of art, our, our family visits art museums sometimes and other museums of various kinds, and there are at least two approaches to visiting those places. One, uh, you can try to stop at every exhibit and scrutinize every deal, detail and read every word of every plaque to try to learn everything you possibly can and just do it all. Or you can just kind of casually walk through, uh, take a look at the things that catch your eye, maybe read a little bit of the plaque if you're trying to figure out, you know, what Greek myth was that based on, or uh, why does that guy have a birdcage for a head, or whatever you're, you're trying to figure out. But this will be more like the casual stroll. I won't answer every question, do justice to every word that's in here, but I want to point out some things that I find encouraging that I hope that you will find encouraging as well. And the long and short of this whole passage here is that Christ deals with the guilt and the shame and the suffering of his people once and for all, but it's not just a removal of those things, it is a reversal of the guilt and the shame and the suffering of his people. This concept is really at the core of the gospel, isn't it? The good news is not just that God takes away bad things, but that God gives everything good. We talked about that last week. Every good and perfect gift is from above. In his timing, when all is said and done, he will have taken every part of your life, of your existence, and poured his unfathomable riches into it beyond anything you could ask or imagine. Arguably, this is the point of verse 8, 
I'm going to skip down there, by the way. I think in the Bibles and the chairs, the racks there, I think we're on page 620 is where the passage starts. In verse 8, the ESV reads, For I, the Lord, love justice, I hate robbery and wrong. But it probably has a footnote, or should have a footnote, that says it could be translated, I hate robbery with a burnt offering. We, we kind of have tweaked it to wrong, because there's an argument that maybe a, a letter was, or a vowel point or something was incorrect there, and maybe robbery makes more sense, because what do uh, burnt offerings have to do with this? Uh, but the Irish Bible scholar uh, Alec Motier argues that the burnt offering idea actually makes better sense. A burnt offering is a kind of sacrifice where the whole sacrifice is supposed to be burnt up. Uh, you're giving the whole thing to God, and anything that's held back from it, any portion that you hold back for yourself to eat, is robbing God. So if you flip that around, you find that God's salvation follows the same standard. God holds nothing back when he gives to us. Where sin abounds with all its consequences, grace abounds all the more. So there are multiple facets of this great reversal in this text. This is where the casual stroll begins and just... FYI, to cite sources here, I'm, I'm leaning on Alec Motier's explanation of each of these sort of portraits we'll look at. They're kind of the plaque next to each portrait we're going to look at as we stroll through here to, to fill in some of the information so that we can then reflect on uh, how Christ addresses each of these conditions um, that we see portrayed here. So as we stroll through the text, uh, first we meet the poor, the people to whom the anointed Messiah, Christ, proclaims the good news. Uh, this poverty is not limited to sort of financial or material poverty. As, as Motier says, the downtrodden, the disadvantaged, held back from progress and amelioration by people and circumstances. In other words, those who are outcast for whatever reason. It's to these people that the Messiah comes, the anointed and spirit-filled divine bringer of good news. And we certainly saw that already, uh, thinking back to where we've been in Luke so far, right? Uh, Jesus showed favor to disabled beggars and to wealthy tax collectors. He welcomed the people no one else was looking for. He drew the audience that nobody else was going to target. I mean, he would dine with anyone, including Pharisees, but Luke especially points out Jesus' ministry to those who had nothing to offer in the views of the world. The year of the Lord's favor, in other words, is a year of unmerited favor. God's grace alone, that's what this points out. So if you feel like you're not worthy of any of this, Jesus has good news for you. Next we meet the brokenhearted. Uh, Motier says this idea of brokenheartedness is broad enough to include any and every kind of human breakdown from what he calls emotional prostration to conviction of sin. I like that idea. Well, I don't really like the idea of emotional prostration, I guess I could say, but I like the way of saying it. You know, Christ came to bring healing to those who are emotionally just flat on their faces whether overwhelmed with, with suffering or loss or the weight of their own sin. It's to these people Jesus comes and he, he binds up the brokenhearted. He brings healing 
bound the broken and the weak to make them healthy and strong again with the strength that he gives. And I know we're just kind of flying through some of these, but a question to ask, has your heart been broken? Are you flat on your face? Christ has power to heal. He came to set prisoners free, liberty to the captives, and opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Motier points out that the terms captive and prisoner speak to those who are bound by people or by place, and that this implies release of every sort. Now, I used to wonder about this when you read uh, through Luke, and Jesus says he came to you know, bring liberty to the captives, like where are the jailbreak miracles, right, in Jesus' earthly ministry if he came to set captives free? Well, in the immediate context of Isaiah, they would have understood this to mean freedom from Babylonian exile, but that's just a partial fulfillment. The true liberty doesn't come until Christ. He brought all kinds of release, thinking through his earthly ministry, set people free from demonic oppression, from disease, from guilt and from shame, from worry and anxiety, ultimately from the power of sin and death. So what has you held captive? What do you need release from? In Christ, you can have true release, true freedom. Number four here, we'll spend a little bit more time on. Christ came to comfort all who mourn. In Motier's view, this includes all sadness of life, but mourning over sin is the primary thought and the means of entering into the blessings that follow. Mourning over sin is the primary thought because, well, the whole context of Isaiah. Uh, mourning for sin is kind of a theme here. There's also a link to chapter 57, verse 8, where the same word for mourning is clearly connected to repentance. This whole book really is about uh, the, the judgment that would come and the need for restoration because of sin and how lamentable, how mourn-worthy the whole situation of, of Israel is because of their sin. Sin is the root cause of all suffering we see and experience, at times because of our own sinful choices, at times because of the sin of others against us, at times just because sin broke the world and things don't work the way they should. You, you can't look at somebody who's suffering and immediately say it's because of their own personal sin. But th at the same time, you can't ignore the reality of human sin if you want to address the problems that we see in the world and in our own lives. Because as long as sin is there, sin's consequences are going to be there. But once sin is dealt with, once it is forgiven, then the consequences are reversed. There are riches to be received as mourning for sin, and Isaiah turns to rejoicing for salvation. In the rest of verse 3, God swaps the clothing of mourning with clothing of celebration. Instead of mourning, instead of ashes, instead of despair, the repentant are given a beautiful headdress or a crown of beauty in some translations, anointed with the oil of gladness and dressed in a garment of praise. You know, we, we spend time in prayer of confession, sin every week, because repentance is an ongoing part of this life, because sin is an ongoing part of this life, because that's part of how we grow, is by re ongoing repentance. 
Sin needs to be confronted and confessed and grieved. But that's not the end of the story and hopefully not the main takeaway from our time of worship together. Look at where the repentant end up in verse 3 of of chapter 61 of our text. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. Oaks of righteousness. That's you when God's done with you. You might feel more like a shrub of mediocrity or a weed of iniquity this morning. But God has miracle grow. <laughs> Sorry. That one just came to me. I uh, got past the filter. God is growing you. God is at work in you. It literally is miraculous growth. Growing you into an oak of righteousness. What an image. Towering, majestic testimony to the the power of their creator. Isn't that how we see the first followers of Christ as we look back on their lives? Those men who in the gospels are just kind of selfish and cowardly. Yet think of what God made them into by the time we finish the book of Acts. Powerful witnesses of the power of God in Christ in their lives. Most of whom gladly end up laying down their lives for the gospel, for the glory of God. Which is what this is all about at the end of verse 3, right? That God may be glorified. God glorified in you. Beyond mourning for sin lies joyful praise as we give God the glory. He uses the poor, the brokenhearted, the captives to show that this is his work by his grace poured out in us. And he graciously gives us a role in that ongoing mission, doesn't he? Uh, We see this looking at verse 4 as the ancient ruins are rebuilt. It says they, meaning the, the same people who had been mourners and are now oaks of righteousness or being built into oaks of righteousness, they begin to rebuild. Isaiah writes of devastations of many generations, interesting phrase, and remember again in context that Jerusalem was destroyed, laid waste by the Babylonians when they came in. Uh, Here again, there is partial fulfillment. Think of the Old Testament books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where the temple and the walls are rebuilt. But the meaning goes beyond infrastructure and architecture. Again, Motir says, every kind of, every breakdown of the past is mended no matter how long-standing. All this long-standing inherited brokenness will be restored. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? We know that past brokenness lives on in the present in many ways. You see it in families. You see it in nations. You can even see it in in churches. We struggle to escape the shadow of the past in, in so many ways. Past conflicts still affect us today. Uh, not just our own past, but the past of those who have shaped and influenced us. We've certainly inherited brokenness from the sin of Adam. But we could list other examples of of inherited brokenness from our own lives or even from the pages of of Scripture. You see how sin echoes down through generations, has consequences. It's interesting that the way Isaiah phrases this, the people themselves do the rebuilding. They shall build up, they shall raise up, they shall repair. Again, the partial fulfillment in Ezra and Nehemiah is a literal human construction project. But I think there remains a need to restore what sin has broken. Instead of just 
living among the ruins, passing on the brokenness, to have a role in the new work that God is building. Paul certainly described his own ministry that way in 1 Corinthians as as building on this foundation. In Ephesians 4, uh, we're all described that way. We play a part in the building up of the body of Christ. That includes restoring what sin has broken. And that is a beautiful calling. We get to participate in that work that God is doing, building this new people to become this new Jerusalem. Just a couple more portraits to point out here. In in verses 5 and 6, you see strangers and foreigners having a role in the life of the new Zion. Because of our own country's history, we read about ethnically distinct people doing farming, and we think this must be kind of a slave state. And certainly eating the wealth of the nation sounds like plundering the Gentiles, but that ignores the context in Isaiah. If you were to go back into chapter 60, um, the Gentiles come to Zion. God accepts their offering. God accepts their praises. Interesting verse to look at in, in chapter 60, verse 15. Zion is depicted as nursing from the nations and the kings of the nations like, like a baby nursing from his mother. So the point is not that the Gentiles are enslaved, but that the Gentiles come to Zion and become part of the community. As they bring their own strength and their own wealth, it's incorporated into and contributes to the glory of the new Jerusalem. We could maybe say grafted into the new Jerusalem. And isn't this what happens in the ultimate fulfillment through Christ as Christ's Jewish apostles, ministers of God, bring this good news to strangers and foreigners, to the Gentiles, who then come to this new Zion, this new covenant community, and the church grows. Strangers welcomed into God's people, dividing walls brought down, God's grace extended to former aliens and strangers, and this again redounds to the glory of God. Finally, final facet that we see reversed is the idea of shame. Motier correctly points out that this is more than just the feeling of embarrassment. You've probably heard preachers talk about honor, shame cultures versus guilt, innocence cultures, which is is helpful to bear in mind. Uh, But shame is part of the human experience, uh, regardless of whether it dominates, dominates our culture's understanding or legal system or anything like that. Uh, Frankly, we see the idea of shame in our own culture. Just think about cancel culture, so-called. Think about um, how politicians increasingly just mock their opponents to score points. Um, With guilt, there's a sense that there's something wrong with what I've done. When you think about shame, it's more like there's something wrong with me. Motier describes it as being disappointed of hope and exposed as a fraud. Everyone can see that you're not who you're trying to convince us who were, that you don't belong, that people shouldn't associate with you, there's something wrong with you. And it's interesting that in Isaiah, the reversal of shame is a double portion and a lot or an inheritance in the land that they will rejoice in. In the Old Testament, where the promised land was divided among clans and families as an inheritance to be passed on. 
to have an inheritance in that land is to belong there, to be a part of it. So to have a double portion is a great honor indeed. There's no doubt that this promised land is your home because you've got double the inheritance. What we've seen, I guess, in our casual stroll through this is the utter reversal of every type of misery someone might endure. Every outworking of sin is undone. Remember, Christ himself asserted that he fulfills this glorious prophecy, and ultimately he fulfilled it all on the cross, did he not? He himself took on every kind of misery that we just read about. To bring good news to the poor, he became poor himself, no place to lay his head. To heal the brokenhearted, he became a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. To set prisoners free, he was arrested, he was falsely condemned. They let an insurrectionist murderer go free instead. To comfort those who mourn for sin, he suffered unimaginable agony, sweating blood, anticipating the wrath of God for sin that would come upon him, not for any sin of his own, but for ours. And to rebuild what was ruined, his own body was broken. He described it in the book of John as a temple being torn down. To bring in strangers, those far off, he was rejected by his people and suffered, as Hebrews says, outside the camp. To give double inheritance in place of shame, he took that shame on himself. That's what crucifixion is, stripped and mocked and spat on, exposed, lifted up for all to gawk at as he laid down his life for them. But he is risen. He ascended to the right hand of God and he is seated on the throne. And in him, the new creation that we wait for is a literal reality because the curse no longer has any hold on the risen man, Jesus Christ. His physical body is ground zero of this new creation. And believers in Christ are part of that new creation, that new Zion, even now because we are united with him with Christ, and yet we do wait as the old creation groans for the time when Christ will return and make all things new as we have confessed together he will come again. Honestly, what I want us to take away from this text this morning is just to know what God has done for us in Christ. It's all taken care of just to rest in that. This good news that brings all the healing all the comfort, all the freedom, all the righteousness, all the restoration and reconciliation, all the honor, all the glorious inheritance of the saints, everything you'll ever need or want, and then some provided for. What is there left to be worried about in, in changing times, in anxious times, in, in uncertain times, in all times, just to rest in what God has promised I should take a minute, I guess, just to be clear here, to clarify again the already not yet character of this. 
We talked about trials last week from the book of James. So we know that trials and suffering do happen still in the lives of Christians. God uses them actually to give us some of the blessings we just talked about, to make us into those oaks of righteousness. He uses them so that we learn steadfastness and learn to run the race so that we can lay hold of what James called the crown of life that God promises to those who love him. What we've just looked at is sort of a a fleshing out of what that life looks like that we're given. So this isn't a prosperity gospel, health and wealth, best life now, name it and claim it kind of life today. That's making everything already and ignoring the not yet. There's a reason Christians wait for the coming of Christ. On the other hand, Sometimes I fear we can be so eager to reject the prosperity teaching that we have trouble praying, give us this day our daily bread. We start thinking that the only blessing God has for us now is forgiveness of sins. Other than that, you're on your own. Now, life surely does include trials and griefs. We won't always understand. But we can trust that God does care for us in this life, and we can pray for his blessings upon our lives. But beyond daily bread, God is shaping us to be an Isaiah 61 kind of people. There's a blessing to the transformation that he is working in our lives. Not perfectly, but noticeably, we start to become oaks of righteousness. Look at the final verse, verse 9. Their offspring shall be known among the nations, their descendants in the midst of the people's All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. God's blessings are noticeable upon the people who are blessed in that way. There's something noticeably different about us. So as a final thought, this tells us something about what the church should start to look like. As we grow in Christ, as we put Christ first in all we do, How does that transformed character start to work itself out into the the culture of the church, into the lives of its members? Uh, What does it look like to be the body of Christ, to be, as it were, an embassy, an outpost of that new Jerusalem? It needs to be about the kind of work that Christ did, and that's first and foremost to preach good news to the poor, to those who need to hear it, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ And as an outworking of that, to be a place where the brokenhearted are bound up and find healing, where those who are captive, captive to sin, uh, are set free. To be a place where those who mourn are comforted. To be a place where what has been broken is restored and built up again. To be a place where the stranger is welcomed. To restore those burdened with shame. This is what Christ does for us. And as he himself said, freely you have received, freely give. Let's pray. Father, we give you the thanks and praise and glory for what we see in this wonderful promise from the book of Isaiah. It's just this beautiful picture of what life will look like in the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And this picture for us to remember of what Christ has taken on himself to purchase that for us.
that though we failed to love you with our whole heart, that we held back things that belong to you alone, praise be our gracious and glorious God that in your salvation you held nothing back, not even your own son whom you gave as a propitiation for our sins, as not only removing the guilt of our sin, but giving us, crediting to us the righteousness, perfect righteousness of the incarnate Son of God and all the blessings and all the inheritance that flow from us, that we gain from his reward. And what a beautiful picture we've seen of the riches that will be poured out on us in the age to come. Thank you for uh, the words of Isaiah and the encouragement they give us today. And we, we pray that as we look to Christ, that we continue to experience those blessings, that freedom, that comfort more and more. We thank you for the ways that we have already received it and all the ways that we see it already in the life of our church. And we pray that it would transform us more and more that those who look on us would be able to see that this is a people the Lord has blessed, not so that we could obtain the glory, but so that you would be glorified, that our lives and our life together would be a testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ that we speak. And as we preach the gospel to one another and to the lost, Pray that Christ would be magnified, sinners converted, believers strengthened, and your name glorified. We ask these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.